Welcome to another episode of How to Make It in Africa. This is your host, Fadil Jawi. This podcast brings you some of the best stories of African entrepreneurship. African entrepreneurs have their own great successes, and they will be on this show to share them. We have in-depth conversations with entrepreneurs, creatives, and other changemakers. Together with our exciting guests, we explore and dissect their motivations, their challenges, and the strategies to succeed across Africa and to build businesses that scale regionally and internationally. Today's guest is building an international sportswear brand made in Africa and rooted in local heritage. Now on to the show and enjoy this thing. Hi, everyone. Our guest today is Navalayo Osembo. Navalayo is co-founder and CEO of Enda Athletic Inc. She's a graduate of the London School of Economics and has worked internationally, including in the US, UK, Ethiopia, Tanzania, and Kenya, where she utilizes her diverse skills as an accountant, a lawyer, risk manager, and in international development. She's from a town near Eldoret, Kenya, that has produced generations of the world's greatest distance runners. Prior to creating Enda, Navalayo started a sports academy in Bungoma, Western Kenya, to provide sports protégés from disadvantaged backgrounds access to much-needed professional training without compromising their education. In order to maximize social impact in Kenya through sports, Navalayo teamed up with her co-founder to create Enda Athletic Inc., a made-in-Kenya running shoe brand that creates jobs, invests in local communities, and spurs economic development through exports. Nava, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. I think you know by now how pleased and excited I am to have you with us today. So let's start from the very beginnings Mm -hmm. and travel back in time to when you were working in the international development space. You were all set for a promising career at the UN. So what was the trigger that made you decide to jump off and start a company, especially in a completely different field? A couple of factors, because uh, first things first, I really, really enjoyed my career and loved the career at UN. I was working for the Office of Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, and the work was fulfilling, you know, like it's work that is directly linked to you know, helping people who are weak and vulnerable. And so at that particular point, I have to say, like, I was doing pretty well, you know, but one thing is that I had started Enda in 2015. So before it was just kind of like an idea, you know, like something you have an interest in and you want to pursue and see what you could do with it. By the time it was like about four years later, Enda had grown significantly to a point where it was demanding a lot of time, you know. So it had grown uh, mostly in Kenya and the US. We were having international customers. And the question had to come, what do I need to do? It was taking up too much time because I had a full-time job. I have two kids and I have Enda, which is also demanding a lot. And so it got to a point where managing all those three just became a little bit difficult and I had to make a choice. And so I approached my mentors and I asked them, like, uh, what what should I do? You've been here long enough. I, I talked to people both in the business industry and in 
in the UN as well. And so looking at both, the feedback was more of you have something special, you have something unique, you can always rebuild your career based on your experience and it doesn't hurt to go and try. And uh, the other feedback was also just a reminder of how finite life is, you know, do you want to get to the end of your deathbed and say, oh my God, I, I had a really good career, but would you have regrets? And so I think that fear of regret, that fear of I might go there, I might get to my end and basically feel like I should have pursued that opportunity <laughs> made me think I should. And lastly, as I said, from uh, from the mentors I spoke to, they made it very clear that you can always build a career, but you can't always build a business. A business is so dynamic that some of it is outside your control. And based on that feedback, uh, it became clear that the decision to be made was to pursue, to just give Enda a chance and see how far it could go. And regardless of the outcome, if it, had, it didn't work out, I could always go back and look for a job. If it worked out, then it would be an amazing thing if we were to make that vision happen. So, I mean, it's quite philosophical conversations you had with your mentors. I mean, it's, uh, it's about, you know, uh, what am I going to do, you know, for, for the rest of my life? You know, would I regret uh, what I'm doing if I'm, you know, say uh, 80? It's a bit like uh, Jeff Bezos. I think his typical, you know, typical question that he asks himself is, you know, if I turn 80, would I regret not doing this mm-hmm. earlier on? Yeah. So I guess that's kind of like the process you went through. Mm-hmm. And it's also interesting that you actually you know, got in touch with your mentors. So, I mean, a related question is, you know, how, how important have mentors been in, in the whole process and in your life more generally? I'd say they are, they are very, very instrumental. You know, uh, you know, the famous English saying, experience teaches fools. I've always wondered about that question, you know, that's it. <laughs> and it, it, I understood it. I rather understand it as only a fool is foolish enough to not ask the advice of those who have been, you know. So instead you try to learn something and then you get injured or you make losses or you do other things. Whereas there's someone who's literally gone through the journey that you've gone through. So it doesn't hurt to ask them. So I'd say mentors have been extremely important in my life in various aspects. And especially when you have doubts, I find them extremely useful in that particular sense. Uh, Because, for example, when I was leaving the UN, I asked someone who had retired from the UN and someone who was retiring from the UN. And they had a better insight compared to my peers who were like, why would you want to do that? You know, like, that's crazy. Whereas they had like, I've spent my whole career here. I can tell you for sure. (laughs) Go and try something. Let's go and do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I think when you have mentors, the age difference, the wisdom, the fact that they have gone before you and they have done what you want to do, it just makes sense to ask people and therefore reduce your learning time and hopefully achieve better results based on the lessons they give you. And and so also interestingly, what what you said was you started the company while you were still, you know, in your job, right? Mm -hmm. So that adds obviously like more, you know, complexity to... uh, to, to, to the efforts. Yeah, just like the tennis school, I don't really look at the company like, oh, here's a company I'm starting, I'm going to make a lot of money from it. It was an interest, you know, like it's the same way when I started the tennis academy, it was like a hobby slash a desire to basically, that one was started by wondering why there are no Africans in the top ATP 100 for tennis. And I was like, okay, I'm going to start a tennis academy, you know, so it's it's more of, yes, you're doing your regular nine to five, but at the back of your mind, you have thoughts, you have questions and you're trying to answer them. And so Enda was also an idea of why doesn't Kenya benefit more from this industry? 
And then it became, okay, let's try to do X, Y, Z. And then once you try to do it, you're like, oh, there's actually another layer you could do and another layer you could do. And so it's been a step-by-step building process. But initially, it was more of what can we do to solve this problem? Because it needs to be solved. And then it just became um, a company by itself. And it took its own life. Yeah, so it's not like I want to start a business. It's more like there's a problem that I was interested in. Yes. You know, why is nobody taking care of this? You know, I would like to take a crack at it uh, and, and and let's give it a shot, right? Yeah. That this is more the, the the logic behind. But but then why Enda? You know, how did the idea come about? Why is you know not starting something else? You know, among all potential ideas you had at that time. Yeah, so the the sports academy I started failed. Like uh, there were very many reasons why it failed. And so coming out of that experience, I was like, I still want to do something in sports. I believe my community is talented in sports. I believe Kenyans are talented in sports. So what is the one thing that I could do to utilize sports? So it was just more of thinking, like, based on my interest, based on my observations, my failures before, and saying, this industry seems right for for, uh, disruption. It seems like something which, if we crack, will help many people. So what can we do about it? And... So once you start thinking in that direction is when you're thinking, okay, tennis, I tried, it fails. Football is awesome, but then you have to think about getting players to, to you know, big leagues where they can make money, which is a bit complicated. Running, and, and you know, once once I settled on running, I was like, wait a minute, like running, running is it, you know? And so it was just that logical sequence of getting to that point, and it just made sense that every runner needs running shoes. Kenya has the best runners. Why not use these best runners to create running shoes for runners around the world? And that's how the idea started. I, for me, to be honest, when I first read or I think heard about about the, the story Enda, it was like absolutely brilliant. You know, it's a no-brainer. As you said, you have like among the best, you know, running athletes from Kenya, why not, you know, starting um, running shoes uh, from Kenya? Why does it have to always come from the U.S., from Europe, and from other Western countries? I mean, why, why always, you know, having, you know, these same big companies, mm-hmm. you know, being the, the producers, exactly. and why, you know, countries like Kenya and Africa being always the consumers? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, since you worked in international development, mm-hmm. this, this relates to the this pervasive phenomenon in Africa, which is trade deficits exactly. across the board, because we are mainly consumers mm-hmm. and, and not producers. Yeah. So you know, this is this is this was like you know absolutely brilliant uh, idea. So can, can can you take us through the initial process of setting up the business? Because mm-hmm. you said it started, you know, the idea started developing in 2015, mm-hmm. but it only started producing. I mean, the business started producing in 2017, if I yeah. if I'm right. Yeah. So the first thing we quickly realized, uh, my co-founder and I, we both do not have shoemaking experience. And again, the best thing to do is to find someone who has been in this industry, specifically in the running shoe market, someone who's designed shoes, understands it. And basically we're filling a skills gap, a skills and knowledge gap, because we knew we didn't have this knowledge. We needed someone to do it. So the first order of business was to create a team. And by that was to find people who understood what it means to make and sell running shoes and see the opportunity in it because everybody else was like, well, is this, is this possible? Is it like there are many people who doubted and now that I'm in the business, I know why they doubted. <laughs> like I understand where the doubt <laughs> came from. 
but it's also we the first step was to get the team together and then uh get to a prototype and so to to basically show people that um we were uh, we were able to create this product and that this is how it would look like from idea to paper and once we had that prototype the next step was to look for funding now okay let's scale this prototype let's make more of these shoes let's sell them and as we um as we went from prototype to making the shoes that's when we realized funding is a big problem and so we tried different financial institutions there were limitations and as a result we ended up doing a crowdfunding campaign uh, on kickstarter and that's basically how we got um, pre-sales and customers and money in advance that we didn't have to worry about security and stuff like that and we we were able to start and even after starting we did a campaign in 2016 but even after we started we kind of went back to our supply and they were like no these orders are not enough you need to add more like they basically raised the the minimum order quantity and so that really took the wind of our sale you know and we had to go back and basically restart the supply chain from scratch the people who did the initial prototype are not the people who did the first production run and at this point you have people's money you have customers who you promised delivery at a certain point in time you are only two people doing planning logistics branding marketing social media like it was very exhausting to be honest but once we were able to do that from that experience we were able to basically raise once we, we didn't really make like a profit from that uh, crowdfunding campaign but it was enough to show proof of concept it was enough to get us some angel investors uh who basically helped us to move to the next level so i'd say it's it's kind of been an up and down journey but that's that's how we began initially no, i mean it's interesting what you're what you're saying because uh you know you started your your funding through a crowdfunding campaign yeah. not you know raising it through angel investors first so it was angel investors came afterwards yeah. so it's kind of like you proved you know the concept already you know you know by you know just from the mere fact that you had you know people funding it through the crowdfunding platform means that there were customers available and interested so there yeah. is demand mm-hmm. and then you produced based on that mm-hmm. and then you know the ball got rolling yeah uh, and you started producing more and then asking for more funding and then it came more natural yes but but then you know a typical question you know i, I would i would ask for for a female entrepreneur because mm-hmm. i've seen you know I, i've seen some numbers um recent reports on 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 venture capital financing in africa and it's and and i think i think the funding that goes to women led businesses is like less than 10% mm. so you know has it been more difficult to be a female entrepreneur in particular when it comes to raising funds i'd say raising funds is goes hand in hand with running the business because you have to run it well enough to prove that you're worthy of funding you know or that your business is able to pay back the money you've borrowed i i did a tedx talk about this because i feel like being female and entrepreneurship <laughs> are two very interrelated things especially in africa because entrepreneurship needs time there are days when i have to travel there are days when i'm away from home there are days that you know like you know it, it it takes time to to build something and if i especially having a family did not have the support that i have i honestly believe it would i wouldn't be able to pursue the opportunities i have and i know friends of mine who basically chose family over business and it's not 
I don't think it's a bad thing if you want to, but I think when you're forced to, then it becomes harder. So we ask, why are there less women? Because all the smart women I know have to figure out their families first or they can't travel or do other stuff without thinking that, you know, maybe it's not a good look for the family. Maybe the husbands will marry somebody else. You know, like there's all this cultural baggage that comes mm. with that. And I'd say that's a limit. Like to be able to do business effectively and efficiently, you, your mind needs to be unencumbered. It needs to be free. It needs to be able to, to think about the business challenges you're facing and figure out how to deal with them. And to be able to do that, you not only need a supportive partner, but you also need a strong support community so that if I am in a meeting, sometimes you could be working and it's like four o'clock. The next time you look at your clock, it's eight o'clock, you know, <laughs> and you're like, oh, yeah. goodness. If yeah. I was stuck at, I needed to figure out what are people eating, what are doing this. Like, it's not that I don't want to. Sometimes I just don't have that bandwidth. And so if I didn't have the assistance that I had, I think it limits a lot of people from from being able to grow their businesses. So I would say uh, it's linked in that way that by not having the same freedom as let's say men have, because you know everything is being taken care of, then that time it's a way. You can only do meetings at certain points. You can only have a certain amount of time to do certain things. And I feel like building a business is, is an intensive process. You need time to be able to do it, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, this is very important what you're saying, which is like you need sharp, I think, you know, laser-like focus yeah. to be able to grow the company. And you need to be in that state of flow, yes. which is like you said, right? You said you were, you know, you don't see the time passing. It's 8 p.m. You need to be in that state of flow. And for that to happen, you don't need, you know, additional things to think about. Yeah. And, and so you need a lot of support. So, and, and I think it's even more the case because you said you, you had kids, so you have responsibilities, you yeah. know, and, and, and you must be thinking about them and you need to feel that, you know, they're, they're comfortable, you know, they're taken care of, etc. Yeah. So you need support from the partner, you need support from family, from friends, etc. Yeah. And all these are things that we don't see, I think, right? When we meet CEOs, we meet founders and they're busy building something and and all this stuff has to be there and is you know as important as you know the skill and the drive of the person building building the company yeah absolutely and and so uh, now tell us more about the company as it is today so mm -hmm. i think you know a few years have uh, have gone now it's over five six years yeah. so tell us more about it you know the the products the markets it serves its supply chain anything you want to to share with us yeah so from a product perspective we've grown from a single product company now we are a three product company which is important especially if you're thinking of getting into retail spaces uh, you kind of need to have multiple uh, products. We have gone from making shoes and now we do basic apparel, hoping to kind of go into professional apparel very soon, but at least we are kind of like at the basic level. We went from two employees. I think now now we are about, within Enda, we are nine of us. And then there is the... There are other people, you know, we have uh, consultants who are helping us with marketing, with, you know, we have an advisory board, we have the board... We have uh, the factory that's working with us, kind of expanding the, the pool of workers that we work with. So I'd say we've grown quite a bit. Market after Kickstarter, Kickstarter initially we had 
customers from 32 countries and it was really hectic to figure out the supply chain and the fulfillment for, for that. So we decided to focus uh, primarily on Kenya and the U.S. And we still sell to Europe, but not we don't have a fulfillment center. We're hoping to get to that later this year. But so we are hoping that by the end of this year, we shall have a presence in Europe in addition to the U.S. and in Kenya. So, so uh, because you mentioned, you know, uh, in employees, so you have nine, you know, main employees. So, you know, you've been expanding as well, etc. So you had to hire more people. So what do you look for when you hire people? Because you're looking for quality, reliable people, authentic people. What, what, what are you looking for there? I think I'm looking for people who are hungry for success, people who are, people who are okay, like they, they think, I don't know how to describe it, you can tell it when you see it, but someone who will be bothered, let's say, like you, you're restless until you find what the solution is. And that restlessness mm-hmm. is, a, is you either have it or you don't, you know, but mm-hmm. it's more of you want someone who isn't just saying, um, I always give the example, I can't remember who to credit it to, Two people you send to the market, uh, send, find me the price of watermelon. One comes and says the price for the watermelon is like 10 shillings. Even you the information you want. The other person will come and say it's 10 shillings. However, if you buy three, you get at a discount of 5%. If you buy 10, you have that much percentage. If you go early in the morning, you'll cut out the middleman and deal with that person directly. Like same information, but you've kind of gotten that much more. But if the person is not interested in what they're doing, then they will give you bare minimum. And they'll be like, but I did my job. I, I did what you asked me to do. And I'm like, yes, yeah. you did. Yeah. But you, you, you didn't, yeah. you know, it means that I have to solve the problems. I'm not an expert. When I'm starting a startup, I am learning just as my staff is learning. Yeah. And so the only way we can build a successful company is if everybody in their area is putting in the much excellence that they can, that trust mm. that this person is doing the best they can to find the solutions that they can. And so I'd say those are the type of people I look for, like that you think about it and you you feel, you want to solve that problem and you're committed to doing it. And how easy or hard has it been for you to, to hire people um, and, and to find those with those qualities? Yeah, it takes a bit of practice, <laughs> you know, because initially... <laughs> You think, I think one of the things I've learned is that there are people who are really great at interviews, you know, like basically the introvert extrovert balance. Like you have to, mm-hmm. to be smart enough to know that just because I talk great doesn't mean I'm a great worker, you know, and I feel like mm-hmm. actually the more we grow, the more protective I am of the team in the sense of you just need one bad person, just one. You know, and, mm. and the whole thing is yeah. spoiled. Like the, the, it's gone. the balance is gone. And so it hasn't been easy. Like some of it we've learned uh, through tough experiences. What it, you know, like don't just get into a partnership. But this person is amazing, you know. Uh, they could be amazing at being a friend, but they might suck at being a colleague. You know? Yeah, at being, <laughs> at being employees. <laughs> exactly. And so trying yeah. to, especially as we grow, trying to look at what the level of experience is, what they, they, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to look at someone who's very experienced, but I think it's more of the spirit of curiosity. Um, how curious is a person? How willing? How, what do they change? Like looking at their life, are they people who are okay with their life? Are they trying to be better? Are they, um, yeah. and things like that. Doesn't always mean we can afford such people, but I think my main target, even as the company grows, is that if we find someone like that, it's worth 
and trying to do as much as you can to keep that person with you than trying to keep hiring over and over again. Yeah, especially that, you know, while you're growing, you have less margin of maneuver to make mistakes. So yeah. you cannot really afford, mm-hmm. you know, more mistakes. If, if, if it's like a very established, you know, company and it's more became bureaucratic, there might be, you know, it's okay. You know, there might be a few mistakes here and there. But at this stage, it, you know, everybody has, you know, has to be on the same, on the same page sharp, driven, as you say, uh, curious, and, and bringing you solutions, right? Because that's what you said about the, the story of the market. People bring you solutions, not problems. Yeah, that's true. But also, you could look at it from a different perspective. I actually feel it's safer to make a mistake in a bureaucracy than, like, it's, it's easier than, you know, because the company has the resources to deal with it. But at the same time, for a startup, especially for us, where you are creating an industry that wasn't there, uh, so we basically had to train the workers, figure out, like, we've had to do so much. And I figured out that if I am also being very specific on what the team needs to do, and then it it becomes difficult. Like, you also have to give them room for mistakes because then mm. we are all learning. It's just a matter of if you recognize, like, what's the process of, okay, made a mistake what do I need to do you know I think that's more important right like okay let's hear sound the fire alarm let's fix the fire as opposed to you know maybe it's in the basement no one's going to notice there's a fire because I don't want to be the guy who put on the fire and stuff like that so in as much as we're looking for people who are curious people who are committed it's also I'm trying to make it clear that we can make mistakes it's not the mistake that matters let's just not make that mistake twice or thrice like let us it happens once we learn from it we communicate it we figure out what do we need to do and then we we learn from there i think that's for me that's a much better relationship it's a it's a healthier one yes healthier one and it also makes people not scared of telling you when something is wrong Right. So yeah. you want because then if, <laughs> if something is wrong and you don't know about it, that's the real problem. Exactly, exactly. So as long as it's wrong and you said it's wrong, let's fix it. I think that's the best way to, to grow a business. So you were describing earlier, you know, the, the, the company um, in, in its current structure and, and, and you talked about um, there is a, a factory. So do you, do you, do you own the factory or, or you work more in, in supplier mode yeah. and, and in a network mode? What's your approach? On the factory, we are contract manufacturers. I mean, globally, that's the method. And also cost-wise, if we were to build a factory, we would still be fundraising. So it makes sense for startups who are interested in manufacturing to do that. And then secondly, I have learned that running a factory is a whole other business model. Mm -hmm. Like... Interesting. Yeah, so let me stick with one business model, perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Once I know it, I will figure it out. But for now, if there's someone who is very good at that, that's the job we give them. And then we do what we know how to do. So, you know, speaking now more about, you know, the the, the product itself, one can argue that, you know, the running shoes industry is fairly crowded globally. So how does Enda stand out compared to the other mainstream brands out there? And especially, you know, how does it reflect the Kenyan-African idiosyncrasies and heritage and uh, Kenyan runners' uniqueness uh, in the design, in the functionality? Yeah. So the question of being a crowded market is something that we hear quite a lot. But I've always seen it as different, you know. Having worked with athletes, they really inspire me. Like, you see them... 
and they go sometimes race in countries or be in places that are far like beyond their wildest imaginations when compared to where they're coming from. And the one thing I've learned about the athletes is that they trust in the work they have put in. They are like, I've trained, I've done exercise, I've done this, I've done this. Even if I'm going to meet guys, let's say, from the US or other countries where they have like a, pro like they're taken care of properly as sportsmen as opposed to where the athletes are coming from. They don't think about that. They think that I am ready for the race and I'm going to win. And I think that's the mentality I have as well. Like when you are going in, it would have been very easy to say, well, yeah, you know, there's no way we are going to make it considering just how much, even from a marketing perspective, companies bump into the, into the running footwear industry. However, I do think about what makes us unique as Ender. You know, it's not just working with Kenyan athletes to develop running shoes. It's also that our shoes are designed to fit the running training, the, the form of training that runners run. So, for example, you could be doing a regular jog maybe five times or three times a week, same route, same everything. You're not going to marginally improve compared to someone who's doing um, heel runs on one day, they're doing a fat leg on the second day, they're doing a short run. So the way that Kenyans run is based on uh, different types of runs, whereas um, if you look at the other running shoe industries, they're more likely of how someone runs. So they'll basically say, oh, there's overpronation or mm. there's something like that. And so we're, over we're compensating for the way someone runs. But if you're in the Kenyan space of running, the running is by different types. So you're basically improving your uh, stamina, you're improving your capability, your time and everything by variating the training, which is why we're creating the shoes the way we are. We are not just creating one shoe that fits all. We are creating a shoe for short runs. We are creating a shoe for long runs. We are um, creating a shoe for trail running. And so the philosophy of how the shoes are developed are different. Our shoes are also created to maximize a midfoot strike. So right under the forefoot, or like the midfoot, there's a, a, a the cushioning, there's a pocket of cushioning there that's, uh, you know, in terms of, it's more bouncier than the rest of the shoe, but that's just to basically accelerate that. And the point is also to educate runners in the sense of that there's an efficient way to run, you know, and so if you're able to run with a midfoot strike, that's amazing, like keep keep doing at it. But if you're not uh, let's say if you're a heel striker, then um, it would be disingenuous of us to keep saying, keep buying running shoes and keep running. You know, I would say, variate your exercise, do some swimming, do some, yeah. like, give your body something yeah. else. Because the more you run with an inefficient form, the more you're hurting your knees, the more you're hurting your hips, the bigger problems you're giving yourself medically in future. I would like running to be a culture where people understand that way as mm. opposed to, hey, here's a shoe that is accommodating your inefficiency with more cushioning. Yeah. Uh, you'll run with your inefficiency, but you'll be just fine. And yeah. so what yes, yeah, what Enda is different is that we are going back to the spirit of authentic running and saying, you want to learn from the best. This mm -hmm. is how the best, you know. Mm -hmm. And so let's figure out how to, to help you do that or at least have the information so that you can create your training or your exercise based on something that actually works for your body. Sometimes running isn't for everyone, and that's okay, as opposed to trying to push everyone to, to like run and um, injure themselves. So basically, the normal approach to it, or like the standard running shoe is, okay, you're, you're a, you know, I'm, I'm exaggerating a bit, but like, you're, you're, you're not a great runner, but like, you know, we're going to cover up a bit all the imperfections, and you're going to keep on running your way. 
But Enda shoes is more like, listen, when you start wearing it, you'll start eventually running like a Kenyan you know, uh, athlete, uh, athlete runner. So, so I guess that's, yeah, that's roughly it. It's uh, not really. Like, you can't really. Sometimes it's hard. Like, if you've been hill striking your whole life, yeah. It will be hard, you know. Yeah. But what we do is that we don't over accommodate, like we don't create our shoes because I feel like that's disingenuous and we don't mm-hmm. want our brand to be that way. So we are not going to create shoes with extra cushioning to accommodate that. We will create the shoes the way we make them. But we you will have as the runner, you have the knowledge of okay, I may not necessarily want to or be able to midfoot strike because right now I'm a heel striker. However, Based on the information they have learned, they're able to make better decisions. They can still continue the other shoes if they want, but at least they understand. Because whether you compensate for that inefficiency or not, you're still hitting. Like the impact is still being felt by your body. So it's just reduced, but the impact is there. So I always say runners should have the information that allows them to make the right decisions for themselves. Okay. So let's 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 take a bit more, you know, macro view now because you know you mentioned earlier the challenges of being able to sell to uh, you know to international community international customers and, and and let's talk a bit more about regional integration which is you know what a lot of policymakers talk about and again you worked in international development you, you know that quite a bit and mm-hmm. your business contributes to kenyan exports um, so its effective functioning is as good as the state of regional integration in the continent in terms of ease of trading, you know, uh, across borders, logistics, etc. So from your hands-on experience, and I think a lot of policymakers need to hear precisely founders like you in, in this space uh, to, to be able to solve these, these issues, what are the bottlenecks and what needs to improve to support businesses to be able to scale up regionally and internationally? Yeah, I'd say there has to be political will. Like, even though we have this big, big grand idea, there are some people who feel like they gain more and some people who feel more. So there has to be political will, which is balanced in reality, which means that you have to recognize the fears of those who are fearful and the triumphs of those who benefit and find a way to, to balance those, right? Because let's say, um, I use an example of Kenya, Tanzania, because that's usually a big discussion in the newspapers where maybe the people of Tanzania might feel like if we open up the borders, the Kenyans are going to come take our jobs, you know? Mm. And the Kenyans are like, well, but you guys have such amazing farming, um, like your agricultural sector is really amazing. Like, do you not see the opportunity? You could also come to us and and do like that. But so I think when you're looking at um, opening a continent as big as Africa, you have to balance the, the countries are not just in size, but also in terms of GDP, you know, in terms of, the infrastructure that is necessary, you may have, let's say, all the oil in the world, but no money to no money to like dig it up. So it has to be balanced on that. And I think we are doing a good job, but I just that it's not it's not there yet. Like we still like, for example, the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, it came into being, but Right now, if I'm exporting my stuff to Rwanda, I still pay. If I'm exporting outside, like if I exported to South Africa, <laughs> so from a from a policy and PR perspective, it's working. From the ground perspective, it's not working. And so I think it's also the reality of looking at the opportunity cost and recognizing that ultimately we can be all winners. You know, like mm-hmm. there doesn't have to be a winner loser system when yeah. you open a system like this. 
look at how we can balance it out. But we also have to note that some countries might need help, might need compensation from the bigger countries and be open enough to not say, but my money is from my citizens. You know, like once we, anytime we think nationalistic, yeah. it's more of, let's say Nigeria will be like, I can't use Nigerian taxpayers' money to help maybe Togo or Cameroon. Uh, but then you don't realize that if you don't facilitate that, then they don't open their markets. Everybody loses in the long run. So we have to think about it from that perspective as well. Your supply chain, is it you know spanning different countries or is it mainly in Kenya? It's mainly in Kenya, but we want to be a company that's rooted in Kenya, but made from Africa, you know, and so... We are looking actively for suppliers across the continent, but every time you find a supplier, there's like a million hoops to cross. Yeah. And the weird thing is, let's say, if I find a supply in Lesotho, it's easier for that person to sell to an American all the way across the Atlantic than it is for me to get that stuff in Kenya. It's more expensive. Yeah. So it's something that we have to consider as well. So, so you know, there's Enda. We spoke quite a bit about Enda. And then there is you as well, you know, the founder. So... Yeah. What pitfalls have you learned that a founder should avoid while building a company? Pitfalls, I would say, have a really strong board or advisory board. Like you want people who are going to help you with the journey. There is no one person who is the keeper of all knowledge. Knowledge is distributed amongst human beings. So find experts and let them guide you. I would also say build a financial model. I had a lot of resistance to it because it's just so much work. <laughs> but the model really, really gives you a view of what your company looks like. I always say revenue is not cash flow. You know, like you have to understand that um, sometimes you need money and just because you're getting money uh, in, it doesn't mean that your business is, is profitable. And if you don't understand that, then you're going to be spending a lot thinking, oh, but I had money, but there are other things from an accounting perspective you, that you need to take into account for, for it to make sense. So do your cash flow, like do the financial model. And the, the model is more, you know, it's more intense than just saying, yeah, the financial statements. I feel like that's the lesson. I wish I did that sooner. Like we did have projections, but I feel like of late, having spent time with the model, I'm like, ah, I see, I see where where we went wrong. And related to that, understanding your cost and income drivers, like where what's getting you most of your money, where are you spending most of your money, it's much easier to control the business that way. And lastly, I would add, have it written down. Like you can have a threshold from an amount perspective, but every time you have a partnership, anytime you have an agreement, anytime you agree with someone about something, just put it down mm -hmm. because people, based on how their backgrounds are, we have same thing, different understanding. And so we might think, oh, we're in business, but then when it comes to execution, you're like, but I thought you said this. No, I thought you meant this. So put it down because when it's written down, everybody can read and say, no, 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 that's not what I meant. Mm -hmm. And then that saves you a lot of time in future. A hundred percent. Write things down. <laughs> Further down the line or not even like the next day, maybe like 10 years later, you know, you will, you'll regret yeah. it. So a hundred percent. These are like really, you know, excellent, excellent insights. And we spoke a bit earlier before starting the, um, you know, the, the podcast a bit about your week, etc. So what does a typical workday of a startup CEO like you look like? Um, unfortunately, it's rather boring. <laughs> <laughs> well, not for me, not for, for me. Looking for, 
my days, my days are pretty static. I mean, I used to do more exercise. Now I have to admit I'm not, so I need to improve on that. But um, usually. I thought you were a professional runner. <laughs> <laughs> I was, but I'm a professional runner of the business. Right? <laughs> Good one. So I usually start the day at around 7.30 in the morning, but usually because I, I stay up late nights, so I try to be up by 7.30 so that at least I can see one child off, the other one is seen off by her dad. And then uh, once he goes to school, just basically get on my computer and uh, mostly have uh, meetings in the morning. Usually have at least every other day a meeting with the staff, looking at where what we're doing in terms of the business. And then there's lunch and then we continue working. <laughs> it sounds so <laughs> but it is it is what it is. And so, yeah, um, I would usually, because uh, of the time difference, colleagues and other contractors were US-based sometimes. And so I would be picking, having calls maybe like from like four in the afternoon. Sometimes it goes up to, 8 p.m., sometimes 6 p.m., but I try as much as possible to be at least between the hours of 6 and 9 to just be with the kids, you know, like, get, I don't know, read, watch TV, play Roblox, sure. whatever it is they want to do. And then after they go in, like, another three hours, depending on the work, and so I might stay up a little bit, and then at midnight, I might watch something, and then answer a few emails and go back to bed. Um, I try to keep the weekend specifically just for outdoors, working, physical activity and stuff like that. But this, I would say, the last six months, the other months were better in terms of I did get time to at least uh, go out most of the day. Like at least I do like an hour and, and an hour and a half outdoors, but it's been quite intense and I, I don't want to pass this persona of something that I'm not right mm. now, to be honest. I'm, I'm working a lot. It is the reality, and it, it is what it is. You're not you're not going to lie to us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but you know, has the you know COVID nineteen you know period the past year? I mean, has it disrupted this workflow and 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 you do, the way you do business, or, or or not so much? I said COVID has made me particularly more empathetic because the the blur between work and home became you know almost unexistent for a lot of people and i have two kids so i know what it means to work from home yeah, <laughs> with yeah. that can i do this can i watch that can i do this why are you having can i say hi you know so i would say that just made me understand that you know if someone's not available if someone can't put their video on if someone like that's fine you know like you know, as long as the work gets done and then it was also the, the thing that at the end of the day, the people are the most important. The world came to a standstill because people were at risk, you know. Yes, we are in a business and yes, we want to make money and do other things and make an impact. But the core of everything that we do is the people. And so we were super committed to not let any staff go. And I'm glad we were able to achieve that. But other than that, I would say COVID was really good for the running shoe business. Um, if you look at the trends, it was one of the fastest sports categories because all of us were at home and wondering what to do with ourselves. There were gyms, gyms were closed, running really picked up. And so we also benefited from that uh, in the sense that from a business perspective, the pandemic really shifted people's activities to more healthy, more health-related lifestyle, and we benefited from that. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And, and you, you know, you, you spoke about, you know, empathy, and I think that's 
from what I understand, it's also part of you know the entire business because it's also in a sense a social entrepreneurship endeavor. So, how is the company giving back, you know, to and, and supporting the community uh, directly and indirectly? Yeah, so we are doing a couple of things. One, we have a non-profit arm of the business. It's a foundation, and we give 2% of our revenues to communities in need. So the foundation basically organizes that work. Uh, reason being, we thought about it and we was like, well, if we do, uh, if we give back as a percentage of profits, that's, it feels like CSR. Like, oh, we did amazing. Let's just help someone and feel good mm. about ourselves. But I felt like we have to change how business is done by looking at community development as hand in hand. It's like the environment, the people, the, you know, if we destroy it, then what purpose is the business? Like we can't eat money, we can't breathe money. And so that was why we tied our community, uh, community development goals to our revenue so that if we succeed from a revenue perspective, the, the, the community succeeds also. Of course, some of my economist friends are like, that's crazy. Like, why would you want to do that? You make the money first and then you give out the money. But I think in a world that is changing, in a world that is at risk, uh, we have to really think about how we do business. Because if we all think about me, 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 the world, I can't take a portion of air and say, okay, this is my air and I'm going to breathe it. It's, yeah. it's a shared unity. So, so far we have supported a sports organization in one of the slums in Nairobi. Uh, they work with uh, youth and they help, they give them life skills through sports. And as someone who's a big fan of sports, I absolutely believe in, in the power of giving children an identity and skills to, you, you learn a lot through sports. Uh, the second organization we've supported is a women's, um, it's a women's organization based in one of the running towns that we work with. And in here, uh, we gave them money to essentially buy livestock. So if you give someone a cow, yeah. so you've given them an income and then the cow basically multiplies and they can make more money. And last year, we gave direct cash grants to athletes uh, for COVID just because they were negatively affected. And as much as the running shoe industry went up, the, the race, the racing industry really went down. And so a lot of athletes were not being able to pay rent, um, some on maternity leave, some. And so we basically gave grant cash grants out. And this year, we will also determine. Usually, we ask our community what we should do based on certain guidelines, and then we get people to help us decide how to do that. Yeah, I think I think any company like from now on should should think this way. And as you say, not just CSR. It shouldn't be just like a side thing, but really completely mm. integrated into the business because this is more like long-term sustainable thinking that we are not exactly. you know here on our own, but we are like integrated yeah. to this you know broader community, you know broader planets, and and we need to help each other. And and that's how positive things come back to you as well, further down the line. So, so you know, looking ahead now, you know, looking more positively forward, um, what's next for Enda, and what are the big plans? What's next for us is this year we are definitely we are definitely keen on getting into Europe. So we've mostly been doing the shipping from Kenya or from the US, and now we want to really have a foothold in the European market and be able to do the business ourselves and also grow our retail space. I would also say same for US. We've been there, but I still feel like a lot of people don't know about us. So to just kind of grow in that perspective. In Kenya, I would say we are looking at the East African market and not just looking at Kenya alone, which is why the regional integration things are so important. 
from the business on the ground perspective that um, we should be able to make our shoes available in the local East African community, at least as a beginning, and then perhaps we can get to Sadek or ECOWAS or the other places. Yeah. yeah, so we're just basically looking at growing our influence in those three areas, at least East Africa, the US kind of going deeper, and Europe as well um, doing a launch so that we're able to offer our prices. We are also looking to expand our product offering. So right now we have three shoes. So we want to at least be in a position where we have at least five, five options. And consequently, also in a position where we are really investing um, more of our revenue in the foundation and giving it the capacity for it to, to also grow on its own, grow independently, raise its own money and do more. But most importantly, to show other businesses that it is possible, you know, that you can run a business without uh, let me call it the race to the bottom. Everybody is. I, there's this cartoon I saw. I can't remember who drew it, but it was like this big boat, and everybody's busy sewing off the boat and building their tiny boat. <laughs> and so everybody goes down. <laughs> exactly. Everybody going down trying to make their own tiny boat without recognizing that we are all fine in this boat. And I do think that as the world, the way it is, we don't have to always do things the way we've done them. We, we yeah. challenge it and say yeah. business. I know there's been a lot of growth in the triple bottom line reporting, but I do think there's a lot of commitment. We only have one earth. We can't keep maximizing our revenue at the others. Otherwise, we're all going to sink uh, as in that analogy. No, I mean, uh, it's great that you're uh, experimenting uh, with this. Two final questions uh, for you so that I don't keep you any longer. Is is there a particular book that uh, influenced your way of managing and leading or simply your life philosophy that you would like to recommend to us? I'd say the latest one I've read is The One Minute Manager. Uh, it's a very tiny book by Ken Blanchard and Spencer Johnson. But it's a good it's a good book about managing. Like I think a lot of people become managers and they don't know how to manage, Correct. right? And <laughs> it's a whole job. I've met a few. I've met a few. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so you get the output you get from your people is equal to is also a, a big factor. It's it's very much affected by how you manage them. And so you need to look at people as assets. I mean, I'm paying you a salary. I want the best of you. But why would you pay someone a salary and completely limit their possibility? You know, like limit everything so that they're just giving you what you need. And they're like, I don't even want to work there. I just want to give this guy and leaves me alone. So the one minute manager has been very instrumental in helping me understand that manage how to manage different types of people, like um, how to do that. It's very different from, let's say, if you have a new hire, that's the first job. And I might be like, okay, here's something, go do it. In my mind, I'm like, it's obvious, but they don't have that experience vis-a-vis someone who's had, say, say, 15 to 20 years experience. So that book has been very instrumental in helping me realize how much I sucked as a manager (laughs) and how, (laughs) how to be better and to basically lead the team in a way that you are maximizing the the talents, the pool of talents that's available to the company. So I'd say that's been a nice book that I've read so far. Excellent. I'll, I'll definitely check it out. And last one for you, what would you tell, and I think that's an important one, what would you tell young people who want to follow a similar entrepreneurial path, just like you in Africa, and what does it take to be truly successful? I would say in Africa, there are unique challenges, you know, like having you in both worlds, where you just can't swipe your credit card and take some and stuff like that. 
I would say if you're in Africa thinking of entrepreneurship, you have to first think about your sustenance. You know, think about your food, clothing, and shelter. Do you have it? Do not put that burden on the business for at least two years. Like, just assume those two years you're you're not taking any money from the business, and two years is relative. It could be shorter depending on how much you're making. So make sure that you have a roof over your head and that you're paying your minimal. So that means you might need to stay at your job a little bit longer to save, or you might need to fundraise or whatever it is to do. But don't just say, I'm starting a business and I'm going to pay myself a salary from day one. Mm. Um, it's, it's a much harder market to, to kind of start. The other thing I would say is you have to learn to tap into international markets. I have to say our existence has largely been because we've been able to tap across different markets. So let's say, there was a lockdown in Kenya because of the, um, the COVID-19 pandemic response. Whereas that market was affected, the, another market in another country wasn't affected. And so when you're balancing risks, because in, in, in Africa, you're thinking not about the political risk. You're thinking about the lack risk of not being insured. You have the, you know, there's just so many things that you have to balance it. And I always feel like if you're, if you're domestic, you can balance it across different towns, but you can't just you can't just have all your eggs in one basket. Uh, it'll hurt you, and it's, it might be a little bit hard to recover. I would also say intellectual property. We don't invest in it as much. It can be a cost that you're not thinking about. It, like, where should I spend money to you know protect something? But I guarantee you, if you do not do it. <laughs> will cost you so much more, especially if your business grows. So IP is usually seen as a an expense that shouldn't be incurred, and I think it's something that should definitely be incurred. Protect your assets, especially if you're going to deal in international markets, if you're going to deal, you just want your ideas protected and to be able to learn from them. I would say that. And um, I would also urge them to be more creative in terms of fundraising, like, Getting funds is difficult. Like it is difficult, but I have seen things like crowdfunding work, right? And so we you, we do that in Kenya, but usually for a social cause, like going to school or someone's medical bill. But we should normalize to have that for businesses as well, so that you are not. In most cases, most people don't have collateral to qualify for financing, and so when you're doing it, I'd say for entrepreneurs, just know that you have to learn to ask and. Just get over the shame of asking because we also have a culture of pride. Like, mm-hmm. I want to do this by myself. I don't want to be seen as weak. Entrepreneurship teaches you humility and you just learn how to ask everybody, uh, tell everybody about your problem because you don't know who has the ability to solve it. But don't try to do it alone. Yeah, I'd say those are the key points that come to mind. Yeah, we all have that ego that we need to work on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. People, the only people who can, the only way you can get help is by talking to people and it's okay, you know, it's okay to ask for help. Makes sense. Uh, I mean, these are very pragmatic and and wise words. And Nava, this was an awesome uh, conversation. You're authentic, inspiring. Thanks again for uh, being with us today. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me as well. And to the audience listening, if you want to know more about Enda or want to try Enda Running Shoes, I encourage you to visit endasportswear.com in one word. Thanks for listening and until next season. Hey everyone again, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow the show on your favorite social media. That's it for now. I'm Father Jawi and you've been listening to How to Make It in Africa.